0: Hi everyone! Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell, part of HeadMere.com. I'm Ashlyn Hissiri, and today we're joined by Dr. Scott Fortune and Dr. Lee Bryant to discuss patient and practice benefits of expanding clinical services. Dr. Fortune and Dr. Bryant, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Ashley. Thank you for hosting.
0: Dr. Fortune and Dr. Bryant both practice within a private practice setting in a five-person otolaryngology group. Dr. Fortune sits on the American Academy of Head and Neck Surgery, Rhinology and Allergy Education Committee, and Board of Governors Legislative Affairs Committee. Dr. Bryant has served as the Chief of Surgery and Chairperson of the Board of Trustees at a regional medical center. In the past several years, Dr. Fortune and Dr. Bryant have partnered to teach ENT colleagues about the practice of office-based rhinology. Today, they have joined us to shed some light on a topic that is frequently glossed over but critical to the success of any physician, but especially those practicing outside of a large institutional setting. Before we get into the details, can you give us a broad overview of what you describe as ancillary services in the otolaryngology or overall medical practice setting?
2: To me, ancillary services represent supportive services or just about anything used to improve the health of the patient outside of our usual roles in direct patient care. In our practice, we offer a variety of services that augment our ability to directly treat both adult and pediatric disorders uh, of the ear, nose, and throat. We offer diagnostic testing such as allergy skin testing, pulmonary function testing, audiometric evaluations, and home sleep studies. On the treatment side, we offer both subcutaneous and sublingual immunotherapy, auditory rehabilitation, in-office surgical procedures that in the past would have been performed in the operating room suite, and in-office DME services for sleep apnea patients.
0: So one of the main reasons that we started to uh, record this specific podcast series about the business of medicine and one of the main reasons that we're talking about this topic today is traditionally in medicine, we spend almost all of our time learning about diagnostics and treatments, which, of course, is critically important for patient care. But unfortunately, that frequently results in us overlooking the business and financial aspects of running not only a functional, but also a successful practice. Can you give us an overview of why discussing these topics is important to patient care and how that affects the patient experience?
1: Well, I think you highlight a really important um issue in that most of us get medical training but we don't get business training and so when we enter practice or we enter an academic uh, group or we enter even a larger private practice none of us really knows uh anything about how to run a business and and to run a business successfully we have learned the hard way that revenue is required and and the further lesson is that you can't really offer or deliver excellence in patient care if you don't have a well functioning office and one that's that's financially viable our practice employs around 50 people and we are responsible for the livelihood of, of all those employees. And so if our practice is not financially viable, we have a hard time supporting not only the physicians, but but all of the people that that do the vital functions that we can't do. And so, We have learned over time that that physician practices are small businesses too, and I think this applies not only to the private practice, to the large institutional practice in in the private world, but also to the academic world. And uh, to to support all of those those things that we offer to our patients, you've got to have a revenue stream that's reliable, and you can't serve the community or your patients without financial stability. This is particularly important to talk about now in the era of decreasing reimbursements. And, uh, and physician practices are looking for ways to supplement the revenue uh, to, their, to their practice to maintain the, the usual services that they provide. So I appreciate you bringing this to the forefront and, and getting this out to everyone um, because in order to provide good patient care, we need a, a, a reliable financial stream.
0: So, when you consider offering these additional patient services, which may provide alternative revenue streams, do you use a specific framework for evaluation of the costs and benefits?
2: Really, I, f- I firmly believe that the first part of the equation is quality and patient care. We should ask ourselves, what can we do to improve the patient's outcome and experience? If a patient has multiple needs that can all be met under one roof, we're more likely to improve their experience and grow our practice. It's also important to add services to help patients and that you enjoy providing. If increasing revenue is your only goal, then you're certainly not going to be happy and professionally satisfied. That being said, it's important to know your market, know the demand and know what type of reimbursement or return is expected when you add new CPT services or even cash service. One big obstacle that we've seen uh, particularly as it relates to, to office space surgery, is the capital outlay. Many practices seem to be resistant to investing or financing large capital expenses, but it's really okay to invest in your practice and look at the bigger or longer term picture.
1: So just to magnify what Dr. Bryant said, when we began our office rhinology practice several years ago, around 2014, Dr. Bryant realized, had the had the foresight and the vision to to know that it was going to require a capital outlay on our part, and so he he came to me and explained his ideas and said, "I need I need you to partner with me, in order for us to have the revenue to to support this." And um, once I evaluated all the things that he had told me, I realized that yes, um, he needed someone to get on board with him. And so what we did was to plan out our costs, and we would do a few procedures and set aside some revenue from those to supplement the the purchase of the next round of equipment. And so um, you involve your physicians and your practice manager and any key um, employees that have to do with the, the um, intake of finances in your practice. And that's how you, you're you able to accomplish these goals.
2: And I might follow up with that. Once Dr. Fortune and I both developed a robust office uh, surgery rhinology program program, uh, some of our younger partners were less comfortable and they weren't trained in residency for those procedures, we decided to make the investment in a navigational system for the office. And even though that was an expensive uh, capital outlay, uh, some of our our other physicians uh, then became more confident in doing office-based procedures when they had the navigational confirmation. And now all of our surgeons uh, have robust uh, office surgery practices.
0: Dr. Bryant, what are some of the costs and benefits of providing more quote-unquote comprehensive care for your patients?
2: In all honesty, there's a great benefit to providing more comprehensive care to the ENT patient. We all know that disorders of the respiratory epithelium are the same, regardless whether the target organ is the lungs, the upper airway, or the sinuses. So for most new patients, I often explain that I have either one or a combination of two groups of problems. We have an anatomical structural issue, that, which is addressed by surgery, or more of an inflammatory process, such as allergy. So in our office, we can provide surgical treatment, allergy skin testing and treatment, and pulmonary function testing and treatment. There's so much crossover uh, between those areas uh, that having continuity of care in one place is highly beneficial. It's not like that we have a hammer and everything's a nail. If a patient has more of a surgical problem, we can address that surgically. Or if uh, their CT scan is clear and they really have more of a, an allergy issue, then we can. Uh, test them and, and, uh, and treat that problem. One of the biggest costs is simply the sweat equity and taking the time to be educated in a new area and take uh, new protocols and implement those in your office.
0: Now, we've mostly been discussing the implementation of these more comprehensive services extended to patients in the private practice setting, but are these decisions specifically to incorporate these extended patient services also applicable for physicians in large institutional or academic practices?
1: So my, my knowledge mostly pertains to the small business model in private practice like us, but I can tell you from my um, committee roles and and from touring around and seeing how um, other institutions handle this, that yes, providing these ancillary services is important, no matter the size or the setting of your practice. I'll give you a couple of examples. I know of, of two very large practices, one in the New Jersey and New York area called ENT and Allergy Associates, and they are a, a couple hundred ENT physician practice and and they offer all of the ancillary services that we're discussing today. Another practice that that offers all of these same service lines is the South Florida ENT group, another very large physician group. But this also applies to academic institutions. So academic institutions have financial challenges just like we do in private practice and and additional revenue streams are required to support all the educational activities that that occur in an academic department, the grand rounds, the lectures for residents and fellows, the patient information materials, and uh, ancillary revenues can can provide the, the needed finances to support all of that activity. So yes, this applies to any practice setting, whether private, academic, or, or large institution.
0: To trying to stay a little bit cohesive as we cover a lot of these topics, we'll Tried to go over three overarching groups of these um, patient services mainly in office procedures, laboratory or testing services, and product sales. And some of the topics and services we will be covering in this episode are specific to otolaryngologists, but I think the overall principles remain true regardless of medical specialty, and there are certainly opportunities to enact similar business designs with alternative services that really fit any practice. So let's start with in-office procedures. How do these play a role in otolaryngology, and what clinical ramifications do performing procedures in-office have?
1: So there's two... Two parts of the answer to this. One has to do with the patient and the other has to do with the physician or the practice itself. A main benefit of office procedures for the patient is the minimization of downtime. If you compare what happens when a patient has a similar procedure in an ambulatory surgical setting and and has to commit to a week or 10 days off of work and the lost productivity that that incurs, uh, it's much more to their benefit to have the, the same procedure performed in the office where they may have only two or three days of downtime. And, and for example, we will provide those, those services often on a Friday, the patient has the weekend to recover, and we allow them to go back to work on Monday. There's also cost issues, and we are going to cover this uh, in just a bit, but um, it, it minimizes the patient's out-of-pocket costs to have the service provided in the office from the physician side it helps you control your your time and resources you're much more efficient in your office compared to how things operate in the in a main operating room or in an ambulatory surgical center uh, you can handle some scans or some messages or some lab results while in between your office procedures and i would say that collectively our practice satisfaction our our enjoyment of practicing medicine has gone up tremendously by providing these office procedures our administrator made a comment a couple of months ago that that the collective mood of the physicians was much improved once we once we started this robust office program so i think it benefits both the patient and the physicians and the practice
0: kind of speaking a little bit more clinically how do you identify ideal patients for in-office procedures and how do you balance that with taking patients to the operating
1: room instead? So let's just take the example of rhinology procedures. We've developed what we think is a a best practice for identifying who's a good candidate for a procedure in the office. And what we've learned from site visits and, and just from from doing this over time is that there are a few criteria that you can use to identify an ideal uh, patient for an off- in-office procedure. And, and for rhinology specifically, the first is how does the patient tolerate the end- endoscopic exam? If the patient can tolerate having the endoscope for a period of time in their nose, there's a good chance they, they can tolerate having an office procedure done. A second criteria that we look for is to ask them how they've done previously with invasive dental procedures. So the patient that can tolerate deep cleanings or crowns or fillings or extractions, chances are they're going to be able to tolerate what what you're going to do in your office. And the final criteria there is, are they going to be able to to withstand the the noises that a rhinology procedure entails? And so depending on what you're doing with turbinates or septum or balloon devices, there's some popping and crackling noises. And usually you can tell when you mention that to the patient, right away if they're going to be able to tolerate that or not. And so a patient who's very anxious, can't, can't undergo the endoscopic exam very well, who's done poorly with dental procedures or, or who's concerned about the noise that the procedure might make, those, those patients may be better candidates for services provided in the ambulatory surgery center or the main operating room. On the other hand, if they get through those, those three screening tools, chances are they're a very good patient for an in-office procedure.
0: Switching gears a little bit, what are some of the financial ramifications of performing in-office procedures? Or in other words, how do the numbers play out differently in the clinic versus in the operating room?
2: The numbers play out, I think, radically different differently And how we first got into the service line of office-based rhinology it was really over a decade ago. And I, I asked myself, why, you know, we, we had patients that needed simple inferior turbinate reduction. And I asked myself, why am I taking these patients to the OR that uh, they need their turbinate reduction for to tolerate their pap better or for nasal obstruction without a deviated septum? And it just seemed like a lot of resources to be used for this operation as minor as uh, inferior turbinate submucous resection. And then what happened was the reusable shavers came out, the the technology where you could have a shaver and a reusable blade. And so uh, I began to think that I think I could do this procedure under local. This was before 2010. In our group, I asked my partners to let us buy a $20,000 shaver. They thought maybe I was a little bit crazy at the time, but uh, I thought that we could do limited polypectomies and we could uh, perform turbinate reduction in the office. And as we developed our our technique of a sphenopalatine block and local anesthesia and how to control bleeding, we found that the patients loved it and that they recovered much faster and that they spent a lot less of their healthcare dollars and resources the cost of going to the or the cost of the the center the surgery center fee or the hospital fee combined with the anesthesia was completely eliminated and that stands today so there are so many procedures that can be done in the office uh, with, uh, much less, uh, with, with much less with uh, much less use of resources both for the patient and for the, the third party payers. Uh, now we do you know traditional fest and septoplasty and balloon dilation all in the office. Uh, with regard to so for patients, there's a huge benefit. Uh, for the providers, there's some controversy. I think there's some controversy over could there be some abuse of the technology and overuse uh, simply for increased reimbursement of revenue? And if we look back in the 80s when endoscopic sinus surgery kind of came to be out of Hopkins, uh, I think uh, if you look back and look at the numbers, there would have been a rise in in ESS compared to open sinus procedures. And I think we're seeing now a rise in in in-office balloon dilations and other office-based procedures compared to traditional surgery for CRS and the OR. And about a year ago, an article came out in JAMA Otolaryngology from the Yale Group that looked at reimbursements to physicians by Medicare for balloon dilation versus reimbursements for chronic renal sinusitis and they found that there was a great rise in uh increase in all in, in reimbursement for office-based procedures, but really it wasn't apples to apples because it did not look at the additional cost of the OR and the anesthesia on the uh in the and the operating suite and the CRS side. So I think really we have to look at a spectrum of whether a patient can be treated medically in the office or in the OR. And if there's a potential to Uh, Achieve our outcome in the office uh, with a minimally invasive procedure and avoid the cost of the OR and the uh, cost of the anesthesia. Anesthesiologist, I think that there's a great uh, benefit for uh, for decreased cost to the patient and decreased cost to healthcare systems and third-party payers.
1: So, from the physician side, I, I would say that the reimbursement that comes from office procedures is not just to the physician. So there there are some costs incurred in providing the service. There's the there's the cost of the staff. There's the cost of the time in the procedure room. There's the cost of the equipment. There's the cost from the front office for providing the billing and collection services. So that those are all variables that need to be considered in this equation. And and physicians should not be afraid to be reimbursed for the skills that they provide. And and so the reimbursement that that can be obtained from office procedures, while on the surface, it sounds like it's it's significant in comparison to what is reimbursed, say, when you provide the same service in the ambulatory surgery center. By the time you add in all those variables and subtract those costs, what what is provided to the to the physician is reasonable given their their level of skill in providing the service.
2: I might add there's a significant cost in. The operating room suite in the office, the cost of the endoscopes and the OR-grade endoscopic and video towers, and also the image-guided surgery. So there's significant uh, cost in the actual equipment, the capital outlay. Then there's all the cost of local anesthetics and the needles and the disposables, and and the staff. So um, there's certainly increased cost uh, to the practice uh, to do these procedures in the office. But like Dr. Fortune said. Uh, it, if you look at the big picture, it seems that it, that's reasonable, uh, and that compared to the cost of a procedure in the OR, it seems to be favorable for the patient and for the payers. Um, but there's lots of cost savings to the whole system. Like I always joke about our our nurse in the room with us in the office suite, and I'll tell them that you know my nurse Lindsay uh, is their pre-op nurse, their circulating nurse, their scrub nurse, and their PACU nurse all in one. Uh, it's, it's fairly sophisticated work that we're doing. Uh, and it takes sophisticated resources to accomplish that task.
0: What I've noticed is that it's not uncommon for oral surgeons and dentists to use anesthesia providers in the clinic within their practices. Is that something that would apply to in-office procedures in an otolaryngology practice?
1: Potentially. For the most part, what what we are doing with rhinology or eustachian tube procedures or uh, minor otology procedures in our office is done primarily under local anesthesia and topical anesthesia. I do know of, of several practices around the country that actually employ anesthetists, CRNAs, or have an anesthesiologist and a CRNA come to their office to provide anesthesia services. And we had looked at that, although the, the COVID-19 pandemic pretty much derailed that, that plan. In that model, there still is cost savings for the patient and the system, um, in terms of the facility fees, but the patient will be responsible for the the cost of the services provided by that anesthetist or that CRNA or the anesthesiologist. And so there, there's potentially a role for, for that level of anesthesia. I would say for, for most practices, and especially ones like ours, sticking to the topical and local is a perfectly good solution. I would recommend that before you start doing this, if you're not already performing these, is to check with your local, local rules and regulations. What we're providing according to the state of Tennessee is classified as level one anesthesia, and that doesn't require any additional certification beyond your medical licensure. There are different rules in different states, and so it, it would behoove you to, to know those and uh, make sure that you're in compliance with those before you start providing any, any level of anesthesia services in your office.
0: How do you injectables like um, botulinum toxin and fillers play a role in complementing an otolaryngology practice? And what are the risks and benefits of offering those types of services as well?
2: In our practice, we do not have a facial plastic surgeon. So uh, this service line is not as robust as, uh, as some other practices. We do have a nurse practitioner that, that does Botox for patients. However, I feel like that um really to uh see significant growth in uh, in revenue to your practice with regard to aesthetics, one needs to it's probably better when when there's a physician or surgeon that's focused on or has a large on facial plastic surgery or has a significant portion of their practice dedicated to that so that they can uh, also have maybe an aesthetician and and do not only botox and fillers but also skincare products and that sort of and those sorts of things.
1: So I would add that some considerations for providing cosmetic services like this: uh, practices may want to consider an alternate uh, entrance to the clinic and a separate area for the cosmetic patients. The cosmetic patients don't really prefer to be in the same waiting room with the sneezers and wheezers, for example. Um, so you need to you need to think through some of the logistics before you you start a, a service line like this. Um, the financial implications could be similar to any of the other ancillary services we're we're discussing. As long as the the, the products you're providing, as long as you can at least meet your costs, or maybe maybe uh, provide some profit for the practice, that's that's generally a, uh, a good thing. Um, as far as um, medical liability and so forth, that it'd be a good idea to check with your with your malpractice carrier to see if there's any additional insurance that's needed to provide cosmetic services. In some places there may be. In our area, we use State Volunteer Mutual Insurance Company, which is a physician-run company. It's an excellent uh, resource for not only for malpractice, but also for uh, human resource issues and, and for evaluating the financial viability of adding service lines like ancillary services. And they're also a great resource for knowing all the legal implications that, that have to do with, with providing these services in our state. So if you have a resource like that that you can rely on, it'd be good to check that out before you start a cosmetic program in your practice.
0: All right, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, laboratory testing services. Um, Allergy workup and treatment involves quite a bit of ancillary testing and services over a long period of time potentially and would be an ideal example of how these services would play a role in an otolaryngology practice. Can you go over which services can be provided around comprehensive allergy care and how common it is to incorporate these into an otolaryngology practice?
2: Sure. In our approach to sinus patients, I really don't know how we could manage them without the ability to treat those conditions that lend themselves to recidivistic disease. Uh, so the ability to diagnose and treat allergies, use biologics, and control those inflammatory conditions greatly improve our surgical outcomes. Years ago, when I first saw a, um, a new patient with nasal polyps, I kind of dreaded seeing that patient. It seems to me they were destined to a lifetime of, of uh, revision endoscopic sinus surgery. However, uh, with the concomitant treatment of nasal allergy, the ability to deliver topical steroids via nasal nebulizers, the use of drug-eluting stents, and the use of biologics, we've been able to improve and maintain their quality of life. It's been uh, very rewarding to us to see these uh, Sampras triad patients and uh, AFS patients and chronic, uh, patients with chronic nasal polyposis, to see them uh, get better and stay better with these ancillary services. In our practice, we're all fellows of the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy. Uh, we use the Crousey method of modified quantitative skin testing. We offer both shot immunotherapy and sublingual immunotherapy. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, many of our patients have asthma and vice versa, so we offer pulmonary function testing to manage those patients with mild to moderate asthma as well. Some other service lines that we offer, uh, although uh, there's not great numbers, but we do uh Uh, test patients for uh, stinging insects, allergies, and we do venom immunotherapy. And uh, we've uh, dabbled in aspirin desensitization as well. Uh, And there are courses in that that one can take both at our academy and at the uh, AOA meeting.
1: So some other considerations here. Um, We do use lab testing, but we don't bill for it ourselves. Um, We prefer skin testing. We feel like it's more accurate. But there are some some situations we find ourselves in where laboratory testing is required. For example, the patient on on beta blocker who can't stop the beta blocker for whatever reason. Beta blockers make it more likely for mast cells to degranulate, and that can present a dangerous situation for both testing and immunotherapy. So for those patients, we will we will draw blood in our office, but we send it out to to a lab to have the RAS testing or the uh, immunoCAP testing or whatever we we're ordering to perform that at that lab, and then we get the results back. So we we have not ventured into providing our own lab services. We do have have the equipment to draw blood and to send it out. I think that's true for most practices. Just to add a little bit about the biologics, the biologics have been a, a great add on for us. The reimbursement from, from administering biologic injections into your office is is more than sufficient to cover the, the cost of acquiring the product, administering the product, the syringes and the alcohol pads and the, the nurse's time for mixing up the biologic and then administering it and for us observing the patient for 30 minutes or so after it's provided. And once again, this this just emphasizes the one-stop shop convenience for patients when they can receive the treatment for all their airway issues in one location, and the, the biologics in particular have been a great boon to the treatment of nasal polyp patients, as Dr. Bryant mentioned. Right now, the, the one that's FDA approved for that is, is dupilumab or dupixent, but there are some phase three trials that have just been completed with, with Zolair, with Nucala, and Ficindra. And so in the next few months, I expect FDA approvals to be announced for, for three other biologics to treat nasal polyp patients. And as, as he mentioned, anything that we can do to keep that nasal polyp patient out of the operating room is a good thing. The patients don't enjoy recovering from surgery. It has an impact on their, on their home finances. It creates lost productivity for them. And so providing a variety of treatment options like the in-office procedures, the topical treatments like uh, the powdered fluticasone and the sinus nebulizers, ancillary uh, services like allergy and providing those biologics really helps the quality of life for those nasal polyp patients.
0: How does providing uh, additional allergy testing um, and immunotherapy options impact malpractice in an otolaryngology practice?
2: Well, uh, I'm not sure that they've uh, negatively impacted our, our ma- the cost of our malpractice insurance. Uh, I will say that uh, one of the most uh, liable things that we do, though, would be to administer immunotherapy in our office. That may be the most... Uh, risky uh, intervention that we do um, of anything that we do for patients. Uh, These patients are allergic and they're asthmatic and they're at high risk for allergic reactions and even anaphylaxis. So in our office, we've had extra training in the management and an allergy, and we've had uh, uh, robust, you know, continuing medical education with regard to how we manage anaphylaxis, we keep crash carts in our office. We routinely give lectures and keep our nurses up to speed on how to manage anaphylaxis in the office. And so I think there is some increased liability and level of comfort that one must, must have to administer allergy immunotherapy. I want to mention that the revenue stream from allergy services is significant and it's almost distinct and separate from our ENT practice. With the appropriate staff in place under our supervision, we're able to test patients or run a big shot clinic while we're in the office seeing our own schedule. And uh, that just kind of rolls on its own and allows us to, to have a revenue stream even when we're away in the office, away from the office operating. And then lastly, if a patient comes in to the shot clinic that's sick, uh, they're right there. Our nurse practitioners or one of our PAs can see them right away, save them a visit to the walk-in clinic, and also prevent our schedule from being overloaded with, with work-ins. And so uh, it's been a nice uh, a balance in our practice.
1: So I would add a couple of things to Dr. Bryant's answer. A few years ago, the American Board of Otolaryngology had a push to, to make certain that, that our board certification as otolaryngologists included certification for ENT or otolaryngic allergy. And so just by the mere fact of passing the, the boards and having that board certification in otolaryngology, you have a qualification for otolaryngic allergy. I would recommend, however, that if you're going to provide this service, that you become a member of the American Academy of Otolaryngology and you complete the the fellowship, which includes attending some instruction courses and taking the fellows exam and maintaining some some CME and certification. If you have that, then you have the the full backing of the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy if any situations with with malpractice or liability should arise. And especially if you're practicing your allergy with the recommendations along the, the, the recommended treatment protocols for the AAOA, you have the backing of that organization to support you in a situation uh, that may involve liability. Once again, I'd recommend checking with your local mal- malpractice carrier to see if any other requirements are, are in place for your state, but having your board certification and joining the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy will put you far along the path to, to mitigating your, your risk and, and your um, liability issues.
0: What are some of the other examples of testing services that can be incorporated into an ENT practice and how common are those?
1: So I think we've covered a lot of ground on that, but two that we haven't mentioned as much. Um, one's diagnostic imaging, and there there are a number of otolaryngology practices around the country that have an in-office CT scanner, for example, and most of those are or are cone beam scanners, and they're particularly good at at performing limited sinus CT scans or limited temporal bone CT scans. Most of the practices that I've discussed this issue with have their scanner in place to support their rhinology practice. Most are not looking so much to make a large profit from their scanner. They're just looking to break even, but they they like to provide an all-in-one package for the patient, if you will, so that that the day the patient comes for their consultation, they can have their history taken, their, their comprehensive otolaryngology examination performed. They can have their endoscopy. They can walk down the hall and have their imaging study performed. And then when they come back from that, they're ready for the doctor to provide the complete package. They're ready for the diagnosis to be made for the treatment plan to be set. And, and, and for example, if they need to have pre-certification for surgery, it doesn't involve a second visit. So I think that's what most are looking to provide with diagnostic imaging. The ones that, the practices that that choose to bill for this do require some certification and there are a variety of of entities that will help you with that and, and provide you the credentials you need to be able to bill insurance for it. So that's diagnostic imaging and there are several um, different types of scanners and companies that can support you for that. The other one that we haven't covered too much is home sleep testing and if, if most practices are anything like ours, sleep apnea walks in the door multiple times a day, and, and all you need to do is ask a few questions. So what we have in our office are little um, laminated cards in the exam rooms that ask a few key questions about sleep apnea-related symptoms, and that's how we're able to capture a lot of sleep apnea patients. Practices can partner with a, a variety of home sleep testing companies. And the, those companies will provide the the equipment and the report back to you. Uh, and, and most of them will provide a pulmonologist to actually do the interpretation for you. And then what we do with that is to uh, provide medical services, whether that be positive airway pressure or if they need surgical services for their sleep apnea, we're able to provide that also. So imaging and home sleep testing are two important ones to consider.
2: I might add that, treatment of the sleep apnea patient is very gratifying. I feel that sleep apnea is on the rise and some of my happiest patients are people that have uh, have sleep apnea and are successfully treated with APAP therapy or surgery, mostly APAP therapy and uh, they just feel so much better and they have an improvement in their quality of lives and uh, quality of their life. And so in the past, I think uh, a barrier was the process. If we go back 10 years, uh, a patient was seen in consultation they were sent off to an overnight sleep lab at the hospital. They had a very costly overnight study. They were seen back for consultation. It was determined they have sleep apnea and they have to go back to the hospital for an overnight uh, you know, t- CPAP titration study, which was also very costly, and then follow up with the provider again. And I think the process simply um, alienated some patients, the, either the cost or the laborious process it took to get a patient diagnosed in on therapy. And Um, Now that we have home sleep testing, we actually have a respiratory therapist within our own walls. And so we can diagnose a patient. They can walk down the hallway, see our respiratory therapist, take their sleep study, uh, their home sleep test, take it home. Uh, And within a week, we can have the results. We can have them back in our office to go over treatment options, whether it be weight loss or surgery or APAP therapy. And then that day they can see the results. DME company and see the respiratory therapist and, and be plugged in with uh, sleep apnea. And so the process has been streamlined uh, to make it more affordable and easier for the patient to get uh, care.
1: Sleep apnea patients have lots of comorbidities. Many of them have allergies. Lots of them have reflux. Many of them have hearing loss. And so you're able to provide all those other aspects of care for that sleep apnea patient.
0: It seems like with the extension of all these additional clinical services, we're really just creating a, an easy path, easier pathway for patients to receive medical care, and um, I think those are all good things, obviously. That kind of lends us right into our final overarching topic, which is product sales, What products specifically do you see uh, involved, or what products would you specifically see at an otolaryngologist's office that lend themselves to um, an alternative or additional revenue stream, but also address a significant uh, patient
2: need? Well, for us, the main product line or service line would be hearing aids. And as otolaryngologists, we are the, the point of care for people who present with hearing loss. And obviously, they're required to be medically cleared before uh, obtaining auditory rehabilitation, and so uh, hearing aids are a big part of our practice. We're a seven-provider practice, and we have four uh, audiologists who are all all have doctorate degrees. And first of all, they provide all the audio, audiometric testing that we need for our patients. they also provide the hearing aid consultations and sales. I will say that the landscape of these services uh, is changing over time. The traditional model was where a practice would have uh, work with several different hearing aid companies and would obtain uh, the hearing aid. There would be a cost of goods to be sold at a retail price to the patient, and that's been traditionally a very lucrative model in the past and a nice revenue sh- stream for the for the practice. But uh, now we're seeing a trend. A couple of trends. One is for third-party payers to actually uh, purchase the hearing aids in bulk, and the patients are contracted with these third-party payers, and so they have the option to buy the hearing aid at a discounted price from the third-party payer. And the practice is just um, reimbursed a fitting fee to uh, fit that patient with a hearing aid. Uh, and secondly, there's been a push around the country to uh, allow uh, hearing aids to get directly to the consumer, maybe uh, without being medically cleared. And there's, that's certainly very controversial uh, about um, having a more over the counter type hearing aid uh, process. And um, uh, obviously with our audiologists, there's lots of education Follow up, uh, coaching on how to uh, use the instruments uh, and uh, reprogramming as necessary. I'm not sure if one goes tr- straight to the over the counter product. If it's just the patient may be receiving the hearing aid or the instrument and not get getting all the education to make that patient successful.
0: Um, what are some of the costs and benefits of selling products that you might recommend in the treatment plan that you discussed with your patients?
1: So the first thing you want to know is, is the cost of the goods that you want to provide. And you need to set a, a fair price for that that covers your cost of delivering the service, but also gives it to the patient at a, at a fair price. And uh, I would say that the convenience of them obtaining this in, in the office is significant. If you compare what, what we can provide, you know, say with skin products or with, with hearing aid batteries or, or any of these other types of products that you might sell, the fact that the patient can obtain it and walk out the door with it is a significant convenience to them over having to go online and order something and then pay the shipping cost and, and wait for it to be delivered. I'll just give you an example that works really well for us. We we make some oral appliances for our sleep apnea patients, and, and this is particularly used for the, the ones who just have primary snoring or they have very mild sleep apnea, and we Make the oral appliance for them in our office at a fraction of the cost that they might obtain a similar device from a dentist or an oral surgeon or, or any other place that that charges, uh, you know, significantly more than what we do for that for that same device. And so, a lower cost, the convenience of walking out the door with the product and not waiting and not paying shipping, is significant for the patient. Um, and you can you can set a price for these products that. That helps to support your revenue, but but is not gouging the patient, um, and and providing once again the convenience of having it delivered in your office.
0: From personal experience, I found that learning about these topics has been very challenging because of the limited resources that exist and. Um, A lot of practices function in isolation as well, and so there's not as much communication around some of these important issues that we've discussed today. Do you all have any resources um, that you would recommend for our listeners who want to learn more about some of the things that we've talked about in our podcast today?
1: Well, the first resource is to listen to this podcast. This is excellent uh, information that you guys are providing, and uh, we're so thankful that you invited us to talk to your listeners about this uh, today. But I, I would also suggest the American Academy of Otolaryngology has a variety of resources in this regard, and those are available both online on the academy website. They're available by contacting the, the staff at the academy, but they're also available at the annual meeting. So attending a, an instruction course through the academy is a, a good place to start for allergy. I would highly recommend the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy. If you're interested in rhinology, joining the American Rhinologic Society is a fantastic investment. It's not an expensive organization to join, and they provide a variety of resources to support your rhinology practice. Uh, So those are some of the the main areas that I would recommend. I would say that, that one thing that's been very valuable for me from my committee service and from my consulting um, jobs is networking with other physicians. And, and chances are, if you ask some of your colleagues, they can direct you to a, a good resource uh, to, to get some information about, about all these topics.
0: Well, Dr. Fortune and Dr. Bryant, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, and I've learned a lot myself as well. Do you have any last words of advice for our listeners?
2: Thanks again, Ashley, for having us today for this podcast. I hope it's educational for all of of the listeners out there. I think for me, I just want to reiterate that it's important to think about what we can do to make the patient experience better, to improve patient care. Uh, If by adding ancillary services and other revenue streams, we're providing a service to the patient that makes it easier for them Uh, to have great outcomes and improve their quality of life. I think it makes sense. We've got, we have to start there. And then um, many of these things are beneficial for our practice to to help us uh, maintain a healthy bottom line and to be uh, professionally satisfied as well. I think in our field of otolaryngology, we're we're sort of unique in that we, we are both the surgeons and the medical uh, doctors for the head and neck area, excluding the, the, the the eye and the brain. And so we We do have, uh, we treat a wide variety of diseases uh, and disorders uh, from birth until death. Uh, And so I think that we have an opportunity to really provide uh, great comprehensive care to our patients.
1: I totally agree. I would just add a a couple of comments to magnify what Dr. Bryant just said. I think if you always uh, maintain a patient-centric focus, that, that that's going to provide the, the most satisfaction for your patients and for your practice and, and for your professional health. And the second thing I would reemphasize, I've mentioned it several times, but, but call, on your, call on your resources that are available to guide you through these topics. Don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call the American Academy of Otolaryngology. Uh, join the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy. Become a member of the American Rhino Logic Society. These are but a few of the resources available to you out there to, to help provide guidance with, um, with all of these topics and providing ancillary services to your patient. But, but maintain a patient-centered focus, and that, w- that will always lead you in the right direction.
0: Thank you to both of you for joining us today. Well, folks, that about wraps up our episode of Tina Nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.